Welcome to another edition of Bridging the Gap. And this week, we have an extremely special guest joining us all the way from Italy. Paolo Soroni is the global research leader for banking and financial markets at IBM. That's his title, but his literature, the number of books that he has written on fintech, on the evolution of technology within financial services and wealth management is extraordinary. This conversation was one of those conversations that just gets you thinking. You're going to really enjoy it. You're going to find tidbits from it. And it's an honor to be talking with someone all the way from Italy, right outside the Alps. It's freezing over there, but this conversation is on fire. Enjoy. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Paolo, how are you doing, my friend? Thanks for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. How's everything going on your side? Thanks. That's fine. Middle of winter, dreaming for summertime. It's all good. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a bit chilly over there. And you said you're in you're in Italy right now. And so uh, what's the temperature just for us? Today is sunny. There's a breeze coming down from the Alps. It's zero degrees Celsius. So it's a good day. But we had like a couple of weeks here with uh, fog. It doesn't make it so entertaining. But it gives the city that romantic allure that Milano usually has. So that's fine. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, it's better you than me being over there, given that, uh, you know, I live in the South here on the state side, you know, if it gets even close to 32 degrees Fahrenheit on our side, we are staying inside and never going outside until it gets more and you know, a little bit warmer. So <laughs> the Alps are a little bit scary to us in the winter from that standpoint. Sounds like a perfect pandemic attitude. <laughs> very much so. In the winter, it was very easy for us to stay inside. Yes, during the pandemic. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I think that, you know, just looking at your background and your experience, you have such an understanding of the, the fintech ecosystem, you know, wealth management. You talk with some of the, the biggest leaders across the space working for IBM. So I'd first love if you could share with the audience your role, what you were doing uh, with IBM, and then I'd love to get into your journey of how you got to this position. But let's start with just an introduction of what you're doing day to day with IBM. <laughs> well, I am the global research leader in banking and financial markets for IBM. That means that I direct, contribute, and coordinate the business research that tries to understand and give back our understanding of how the industry is transforming worldwide and in specific jurisdictions. Of course, transformation happens with technology, business first, technology as a means for getting through that transformation. I used to travel continuously around the globe. I was like uh, always uh, somewhere and also due to my literature uh, multiple times, uh, keynoting in front of uh, uh, selected or big audiences. Now it's more like uh, home office. So I went from Lufthansa office to home office, I said, without going through the office itself. Uh, and I think that uh, we can divide the world into three macro areas, and I don't want to forget anyone. It's for you to explain exactly how I operate. Uh, um, the US is where digital technology was born, uh, let's say 15 years ago. Uh, now the Chinese are becoming extremely competitive in terms of technology and innovation. But let's say the US had that focus here in Valley, right? The um, entrepreneurial mentality. Europe is where a lot of new regulation is born, and that's important. The European Commission needs to harmonize the capital market union. There is a big focus on um, protecting the final consumer and investor. 
and financial services is a regulated industry, so that makes sense. But uh, the biggest winners so far of the fintech revolution uh, live uh, in Asia Pacific, in particular in China, as I mentioned, and in India, because there the business models are born. So now my role here is to understand these business models, knowing that what works in China doesn't necessarily work in the US, in Mexico, or in Germany. Understand how technology can scale and uh, generate those business models, knowing that not all of the new technologies have the same level of maturity, just to say AI today is uh, much more than what AI was uh, five years ago, and quantum computing is nothing compared to what quantum computing would be five years from now. But then in the end, I want to keep, uh, I need to keep everything under a regulated framework, so jurisdiction by jurisdiction, in a way that innovation is not just disruptive, but is sustaining to create effective transformation and value for everyone in the ecosystem. Neil, you mentioned something there interesting, which was how you broke up the kind of the regions, but you also mentioned that China has been the biggest winner so far, I guess, in terms of the, the fintech innovation. But you also said that what's done in China can't be necessarily replicated or or the business model can't be necessarily replicated in Europe or in the United States. I mean, I, I, I think I may understand a little bit of why, but why is that? And what is kind of some of those differences that you're seeing? If I can be provocative uh, with your audience as a European, we used to look at the US as the place for new things. I just remember when the first McDonald's opened in the center of Milan, people thought it was impossible. Now we have some Starbucks that's more complex to have in Italy because there are habits uh, that uh, correspond to certain places, uh, cultures, jurisdictions. But there is also regulation that uh, is different uh, and therefore uh, what is possible, what is not possible. Now, China is uh, the new world, uh, is a mix of both. Uh, I've been starting, uh, I've been doing my first work in China in 1999. I had an assignment from the World Bank to teach credit risk management to the board of uh, uh, the City Commercial Bank of Nanjing, so 1999. I've been working in China ever since, uh, publishing in Mandarin as well, my literature. And what happened in the last 20 years, is just uh, uh, amazing for the good and for the bad. Uh, I'm always flabbergasted that things change so fast. So now we look east to understand how the fourth industrial revolution is uh, uh, developing. And that is because in China you have different habits. So the consumers are uh, digital consumers. Uh, you think about payments. Uh, Digital payments like mobile payments are uh, more than 50 times uh, the volumes of uh, mm. payments in the US alone. So it's, it's impressive. And also the markets were not so regulated. So there was space for a uh, new business model creation that had uh, a way in because there was a space for, uh, for, for that. So a lot of big part of the population was not serviced. So people could create new ways of doing it. But in the end, ultimately, and this is something that uh, would force convergence in the Western world as well, the fourth industrial revolution, which has just started, uh, is uh, defined as a data revolution. But um, as the uh, chairman of the World Economic Forum defined it a few years ago, what I would say is a platform revolution. So now, um, already in the US, you have a lot of uh, platform examples uh, coming from e-commerce and social media. But what happens in China is really the penetration of platforms uh, uh, in every domain. So they take uh, this uh, to a different level. 
And therefore, it is important to understand uh, uh, the essence of platform economies uh, to learn uh, what change uh, we have to expect uh, with a different, uh, uh, most likely, realization by the similar uh, pattern in the Western world too. And that is basically one of my my contributions and is also the core of my latest bestseller, Banks and FinTech on Platform Economies, which targets the two emerging trends, the contextualization of banking, where the bank, let's say, is um, invisible, embedded, but also conscious banking, which is uh, the well management becoming the center stage of uh, a new digital bank where the bank is visible and it's asked to demonstrate a transparent value in front of the customers. Both of these trends are happening now. So I, I want to get into your book because I think it's so intriguing about that kind of that, that merging of those two. And before I do, though, I want to go back on one other thing that you mentioned, because I've, I've also realized it as well. You said that Europe leads the charge on regulation, right? They're, all, they're a little bit more forward on regulation. And what stands out to me was a few years ago, maybe, I, I don't know, it seems like it, I'm still living in 2020 because of we lost two years. But they came out with the regulation of, I, I, and I, I, tell me if I'm wrong, but that all banks had to apply to like the same API structure to be able to, con, to pass along the data transmission. Whereas in the US, data aggregation is one of the most difficult things to do, which makes it hard to continue to innovate based on that because banks want to hoard the data as opposed to share it to create and expand in, innovation. Why is Europe so much forward on the regulation side and how does that translate into innovation? Does that increase innovation, decrease innovation relative to the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my second book published in 2016 with Wiley, FinTech Innovation, there is a subtitle from uh, a robot advisors to goal-based investing and gamification, uh, starts with uh, a comment that uh, regulation is uh, a key engine for innovation. And I remember the founder of uh, one of the European robot advisors was the first to tweet about the book saying, this Paolo Cirone is a strange person. He says the regulation is an engine of innovation. And I affirm that, again, um, this is a regulated industry uh, because it's a complex industry based on but it's finance. So the business model is the core of everything. And only when the regulation fits the framework for a new business model, effective transformation can really happen to benefit uh, everyone. Uh, Mario Draghi, the former chairman of the European Central Bank, uh, was interviewed uh, two weeks before leaving office uh, two years ago and asked uh, if negative interest rates, which have been plaguing uh, the European economies uh, for the last eight years, uh, would create the next collapse of the financial system. He said, well, look, I know that banks love positive rates, uh, but they have other problems, I could think of. But in essence, he said uh, what needs to happen is that banks have to adjust the business model through the digitalization of financial services. So the focus is on adjusting the business model, not digitizing the business model. Now, clearly, regulation needs to have a point of view. The two things have to go hand in hand. Otherwise, uh, they basically become orthogonal. Now, when it comes to regulation, I can give you some examples. The Europeans effectively promoted the PSD2 they wanted to open up the payment mechanism, also to foster more cross-border possibilities uh, on the continent. Again, as I mentioned, there is a need to harmonize uh, the different countries uh, and bring them on a common level playing field, which is also another engine for looking at uh, regulation uh, more closely. 
and the UK followed up suit with the Open Banking Initiative uh, that uh, moved beyond the concept of uh, enabling payment information to be shared uh, with uh, secured and standardized mechanisms called uh, APIs, uh, application programming interfaces, uh, to also account for other elements about your, uh, your account. So now, this regulation that now is defined as open banking uh, to be very generic is really about um, account aggregation and payments, but is moving and morphing into open finance as uh, the European Commission is also thinking about new open finance regulation to basically account for any piece of information that uh, is contained inside a bank with the idea that that's uh, hosted by the bank, uh, by owned uh, by the consumer. And why this is so? because banking and saving is a foundational element of modern economies uh, and therefore needs to be protected and uh, given back. Now, other um, jurisdictions like the US uh, started working around uh, the interoperability and the sharing of information more because of competition than because of regulation. But that is very so. These account aggregation schemes, uh, they were primary resolution screen scrapping. <laughs> I mean, that's okay, but we can do better than that in the modern world. And if you think about what happens in China, you passed that already, right? So the Chinese platform started with the, within the API economy, right? So the foundations are already more competitive in order to aggregate more and more services, spring new ideas and so on and so forth. So Allowing banking to embrace the API economy is foundational to allow banking to generate new value that now is hidden within a lot of different limitations, right, and divisions, but instead it can be just start to spring if the foundations also technically are uh, more better conceived and uh, and recreated. I, I love that the the phrase you said that banks should adapt their business model as opposed to just digitize their adapt. business model. And I think that that is a challenge that you know I see it over here on the state side that you know even wealth managers right wealth management industry is going through this innovation boom, but there's so many people that are just still not believing in it and going with it, and they're just trying to just digitize their business as opposed to adapt their business from that innovation side, which is so interesting. I, I, I tell, explain this to you with an example taken from Amazon. And I do that with caution because e-commerce uh, is not banking, is not world management. Uh, like we have two personalities uh, because we're very different when we consume uh, buying shoes on Amazon or where we need to make a financial decision. But basically, although the whole industry is falling uh, in the arms of wealth managers, uh, because the reason I'm going to explain to you, they may not understand that they also have to change because uh, the product that used to be the center of uh, their action now replaced by the concept of the client centricity, which in reality is often putting the client at the center of a marketing mechanism to sell a product is not the center or the key element on platform economies. Relationship or engagement becomes the new product. So the way you price for that is different. Pricing goes out of the products every the time and goes into this relationship. Now, why this is happening, first of all, if you think about uh, the US economy, also, but, but you see more clearly in Europe, which is a bit ahead in terms of that transformation because of structural uh, elements, uh, Low or negative interest rates uh, in high cost of capital uh, is basically imposing that uh, it's very difficult to remunerate uh, shareholders uh, with the interest rate margin, which is basically 
uh, reducing the capability of the traditional bank, core banking, to contribute uh, basically to the final profitability, which puts an emphasis uh, on the well management piece, so the fee business, which is made of payment. Now, I know that in the US, like Square, which is a fintech, could also impose a 100 basis points on the transactions, but unfinancial in China is already four basis points. So that is the coming framework. And on well management, in insurance, you can think about the vandalization. So you had active investment managers pricing 100 basis points as embedded fees, and now you go down to 10 basis points, even for active or even less. So now products are evaporating their capability to contribute to the margins, which is forcing a shift to fees by the transformation of fees into client fees, right? But it cannot happen uh, outright. So without understanding uh, the shift from products uh, to relationship and how you price on that uh, is not possible to transform. Now, where do you find a similar example? In the 1990s, uh, I, I attempted my first uh, startup. I actually did two in life. And this one was uh, by helping my brother to build the Amazon of Italy. Now, I'm 51 years old. Uh, you're a bit younger than me. But in the 1990s, Amazon was primarily a place where you could buy books and only mm-hmm. books. And in Italy, I thought of selling uh, uh, fashion, food, uh, furniture, and travel, the best of Italy. And I tell you, Matt, I didn't sell anything. We had a wonderful website, uh, no mobile data, my websites, link design, it didn't work. And years after, I was listening to an interview of Jeff Bezos on 60 Minutes, if I'm not mistaken. And I got a point. I mean, I made many mistakes, but that was a critical mistake. Basically, the journalist asked Jeff Bezos, what's Amazon? And uh, imagine Jeff Bezos with his uh, spirited eyes. Uh, he said, uh, uh, Amazon is not the distribution channel of books on the internet. And I was like, no. And the journalist was like, no. And said, what is that? And he goes, well, I can explain to you, Jeff Bezos said. He goes, uh, the publishers are uh, uh, sending me letters complaining uh, that I don't understand marketing. Now, call him stupid. <laughs> And uh, he said, uh, they think Amazon is a distribution channel of books. Uh, ask yourself, is a well manager a distribution channel of uh, products uh, on digital? And then he goes, they complain because I allow users to write positive and negative reviews, but they say I should only post positive reviews so that they can sell more. But they're wrong. He goes, think about the marketing, right? That mimes about the impression of the future. The drift is always positive, right? Have you ever seen somebody posting a drift that is not positive on stock markets? <laughs> and then he goes, uh, um, in reality, my role is not uh, to be a distribution channel of products. My role is to advise my clients uh, on which is the best book to buy because as they cannot take it, uh, smell the glue and touch it, they may come on the platform, but I don't know how to decide so that it goes with positive and negative reviews that create enough transparency to motivate them to act. And only after I use analytics in order to improve their experience and so forth. So you see, the client in well management in particular, way more than on e-commerce, is offered products. Very few people are capable of self-directing themselves. The real value of financial intermediation is inside the relationship. And then we might have created some opacity, convincing ourselves that is about this, about that. The product is there, is relevant, but trust is realized somewhere else inside the relationship. So only by learning the value, the competitive value of transparency, well, manager will be able to 
succeed in a world where the products are in any case commoditizing because they're getting very standardized commoditized. The personalization never comes from the assets, comes from the liabilities of people and families, your children, your decisions. That means advice becomes planning. Planning is the framework to aggregate everything of a client conversation, of a financial institution, of an advisory network. And that is supported by digital to demonstrate the value of this relationship so that you can price the relationship. And that really corresponds to quite a shift which is happening in the US in terms of the way planning is paid by clients a bit at the time. Now, of course, you may have regulation, retirement is not investing, so on and so forth. But ultimately, this is all about uh, the wellness uh, in terms of uh, wealth uh, of individuals, uh, of families, and so on and so forth. And if we learn the foundations of this, we know how to innovate with technology to enable this shift on the platform economy, which is a shift from products, outputs, to relationships. That means outcomes. That mentality is extremely important. And I've talked about it a lot on wealth management where, and we, we've talked about it here, you know, the product is commoditized. But the idea that he says that I'm supposed to give them the ability of the pros and the cons and the transparency for them to make the right decision because they don't know what decision they want to make is exactly what an advisor should be doing. The great advisors that are evolving are the ones that are saying, here is the options that you have to reach your goal. Here are the opportunities and the ways that you can do it. Here's the pro and the con of it. Let's talk about that and then come to a decision together. But I'm going to present you both of those and I need tools to help me with that. But that's where my value is, is having that conversation and that relationship with them. That's why my latest book, Banks and Fintech on Platform Economies, has a subtitle, Contextual Banking and Conscious Banking. Conscious banking corresponds to this uh, advisory platform that resolves this problem, uh, uh, the justification of fees. Now, I was uh, interviewing uh, Yves Perrier, the CEO of Amundi, one of the largest asset managers uh, in the world, uh, um, at Paris FinTech Forum a few years ago. And Yves uh, is the CEO of a product maker. Like, uh, uh, so like BlackRock, for example, BlackRock was also sharing my literature with their audience as they opened most of their investment conferences in 2018. Because of this reason, I'm going to explain to you. So is a product maker. So the industry is like a distribution channel today. Somebody makes a product, somebody aggregates the product into portfolios or will manage opportunities and delivers to the final customers. So I asked Eva, which is the product or the solution that justify the fees? And he said, relationships. Straight, right? Because without that, you cannot basically position. And the reason is because of what I call the push and pull uh, uh, motivation I get. Now, you have to understand this mobile technology I'm showing to you, my iPhone, is a technology of the demand. That means uh, typically you go on Amazon because you want to buy something specific like my book. And Jeff Bezos uh, invites you to buy another book. That's okay. <laughs> but you go there with a purpose. But uh, uh, most of the revenues that matter in banking, especially when you look at the wealth management piece, also for the retailers, are uh, happening in an offer-driven industry. So that's an offer-driven industry. It's pushed. So the question is, how do you put an offer-driven industry on a demand-driven technology? Now, there are ways of doing that. There are certain dealing in the literature. But without that uh, sincere understanding, it's not possible to plug in innovation in a way that uh, 
the relationship is revealed uh, as the container of the value that the clients can pay for. If we understand that instead, we can go through this complex adder of transforming everyone's expectation and having the circularity of this relationship between the advisor and the client, the advisor and the client, uh, in a way that value is revealed and can be paid for. Without that, uh, you need something else that I don't advise. Give you this example. Clearly, through the pandemic, a lot of people started accessing uh, financial services and digital. But you saw that the robot advisors did not uh, grow as much as uh, the retail trading platforms. But the retail trading platforms could leverage something that the robot advisors could not. That means the fear of missing out. And the fear of missing out is never a good reason for investing, right? So now, if you do not, uh, uh, if you like, resolve the pull and push in improper way, as it should not, like the fear of missing out and excessive marketing of a future you don't own, you need to define value clearly in order to make sure that your relationship with a client is what pays back through time, through the years, right? And that is all that I care about when I discuss the conscious banking platform strategy. I think that where a struggle is inside of wealth management today, and I think you, you probably allude to it in the book as well, is if we're moving from a product to a relationship business industry, mm-hmm. right? That's where our value is because the product's been commoditized. The relationship cannot be commoditized because that's individualized to, to each of us. And you're saying that your value is seen in the relationship. I think what our industry has a most difficult time doing is how to put a price on that value and how to also allow our clients to see it, right? Because that is the most difficult challenge there is. It's easy just to charge a fee on AUM or assets under management than it is to say, well, my hourly rate is $1,500 an hour and then having to prove that to the client. From that standpoint, and that gets into like the lawyer mentality, right? You know, we always feel that we're paying our lawyers too much, but they're probably saying we're paying them too less. There is this gap there. So how do we overcome that to help our clients understand our value? Because they have to pay it every month, even though we're building up longer term from them making the mistake of FOMO or fear of missing out. How how have you seen from your research and your thoughts on on that? Well, uh, that's very true um, because not only the industry participants have a hard time uh, in going through this reasoning, but also clients may have a hard time in understanding uh, where the value really is uh, for everybody's benefit. In order to resolve this, you need a combination between theory and practice. You need theory because the shift uh, uh, that is happening is like uh, going from producing energy with carbon or building a nuclear plant. You don't want to use the same theory, right? You need to have new foundations for that. But then at the same time, you need to know how to industrialize that. So that's why I'm providing new theory backgrounds with the financial market transparency theory principles and a practical approach looking at regulation. Like my third book, for example, is titled MIFID II, which is European regulation for investment advisory. Uh, value generation for investors, right? So that enables you to ground it down on a business model that works, uh, identify the mechanisms that enables to unveil value. So how do you do now? I can just give you the sketch about that. And then, of course, uh, I'm inviting everyone to to consider it in the literature. But from a theoretical perspective, uh, when um, Alan Grisman was uh, invited to speak in front of the Senate committee uh, after the default of Lehman Brothers in 2009, and the U.S. Senate asked him why the financial system is collapsing, he basically said, well, I found uh, a flaw in the theory. You find this on Google, too. 
uh, he said, uh, and I'm concerned by the fact that uh, it seemed to work for 70 years. It doesn't work anymore. Basically, it goes, uh, agents are not rational, right? The market are not efficient, and so on and so forth. So now the first thing that we need to recognize and advisors have to recognize is that um, the structure of financial markets is uncertainty. Of course, you can have opinions about the future. Of course, if interest rates go up, prices of bond go down. But you know that you don't know the future. Even Goldman Sachs makes the predictions at the beginning of the year, and in February, they already change half of them because things have changed. <laughs> it happens every year, right? It's just that facing uncertainty, we want to believe into something, right? And that's where we anchor into the wrong perspective. Now, recognizing that uncertainty is uh, the structure of financial markets means opening the conversation with a client uh, in terms of all the possibilities that are out there are reminding the client that we don't own the future as advisors, but we can help to be more conscious in the way we make these decisions. Now, if we start the conversation like this, um, um, you have a problem of scaring the client, right? Or anchoring somewhere. So you need a different anchor. Now, the first macro foundations of the FMT, that is the macro foundation of financial markets, is fundamental uncertainty, is the restructure. And the second is the irreversibility of time. That means uh, we make decisions looking at things that might happen ahead. That, that is the goal-based investing framework and principle, right? Time is irreversible because we go from life to death. We cannot reverse it. When we buy something, we cannot give it back <laughs> because market went down, right? It's not Amazon that we can return it. So now by combining the goal-based investing framework, um, sitting on agnostic uh, uh, scenario simulations of the future that uh, allows you to anchor yourself from the self-referentiality of your opinions, you can unveil to the client the responsibility of their decision-making. They can make together with the advisor, but in the end, they have to make and become responsible for. And therefore, that allows you to create more conversations uh, that uh, are like a cost-benefit analysis and that therefore enables you to integrate other elements like ESG, for example, sustainability, without uh, avoiding the greenwashing, right, uh, which is always uh, uh, at the horizon, but grounding that into a conscious conversation with a client about uh, what effectively can be done or can be known. And that enables you to do something important, like uh, market can go up and down, and what you don't want to have, have is that clients you know, walk out because the market went down and get upset with you, right? It happens all the time. I remember the first time an IBM colleague heard me talking about these things. He said, oh, I didn't know that IBM was right uh, and discussed these topics. And he goes, so I have a question. He said, I just fired my financial advisor in New York. And I said, uh, why did you do that? And he said, uh, because they did not beat the market. And I said, you hired him for the wrong reason and you fired him for the wrong reason, right? <laughs> so you see, you need to get rid of all of this. But then once you do that, you have a new engine for the simulation of the future. You have the goal-based investing framework or the you know, goal-based wealth management uh, uh, piece. And the combination of two in a transparent framework supported by digital allows you to demonstrate the value, to make the value um, evident. But definitely you also need technology to do that because uh, though you are already convinced as an advisor, you need to make sure that the client is onboarded into this conversation, which is an ongoing conversation that generates value for both. And that's feasible. It is actually happening today. You see uh, UBS just announced, for example, that they're buying uh, Wealthfront uh, and uh, 
if I look at the UBS strategy and business model, similar to Morgan Stanley, uh, Morgan Stanley it goes uh, around the planning mechanism, right? So there is a shift in the industry anyway in the direction. Now, if you understand that shift and you understand the new macro foundations of finance, you can leverage that uh, right, without having to spend so much money to do it uh, as an individual advisor. So you can become competitive and you can differentiate yourself and you can price it uh, in front of uh, of your clients. And technology is able to help with that shift in mentality that our clients need to have, that we can help with, right? Shifting away from looking at performance to the goals-based. And technology can be that constant reminder and utilized in that way based on changing landscape because we have that uncertainty is always there. And what is that meaning to that? And that can be the communication to help change the mentality of your clients longer term. And it also reminds me of the kind of the fulfillment hierarchy or the value of advice hierarchy, right? The, the base is always just investment management. And, you know, what I've talked to advisors about is that when someone comes in and talks about, you know, why is the portfolio down? They always turn the conversation to say, well, remember we set this goal to go on this vacation to Italy and did you, were you able to do it? And they say, yes. And it's like, well, why does it matter over here? You've got to move up the hierarchy to fulfillment and getting out of life what you want as opposed to watching what the markets do because there is still so much uncertainty and are we building a foundation to enable you to do what you want to do and fulfill feel fulfilled and that's kind of where that mentality shift has to happen which is a constant reminder because we've been born on the other way of it for so long we have to change those habits Yes. So the core of this work is uh, to understand that as you cannot be efficient, you can be an efficient frontier because the efficient frontier always collapses. It doesn't exist. You need to be anti-fragile, right? So if the market goes down, uh, you want to survive. That's important. Then the market moves and then you continue. Now, what does it mean? It means that sometimes... Uh, uh, you need to have uh, liquidity that is not performing uh, the way you might enjoy or expect, right? Now, in an AUM uh, uh, fee-based model, liquidity does not price the relationship, right? It's not a relationship. So how do you allow the client to see the value relationship and you to be remunerated for uh, sharing this value with the client? You need to transform the way you get paid. It goes into a different conversation. It goes into a different mechanism. And by detaching yourself from the traditional way of doing that, you can build with the client anti-fragile decisions, knowing that the market will go up, the market will go down, things can happen in life, uh, you can have a health problem, right, uh, whatever, but then you position yourself in a way that uh, you can always be, if you like, one step ahead of uh, uncertainty because you didn't load yourself into a self-referential expectation that then, you know, kills you in the end, which is the problem of uh, most of the retail investors, right? Uh, takes them time to build their expectation. And then once they have it, the market is at the top. <laughs> the old emotional roller coaster, <laughs> right? right? The emotional roller exactly. coaster. Exactly. So that's why I have been researching the biological micro foundations of investment decision making, the gap with technology, the pull and push mechanism, demand and offer, and solutions that enables you to reconcile this whole framework in a way that everybody benefits clients first, but also the intermediary because they, they do a job, you have to be paid for that. So I, I want to be cognizant of, of, of time. I mean, I could talk through this probably for many hours with you because you have the, just the knowledge and the experience and the research. And I, I'm interested to know a little bit off topic here for you, but from whom do you draw your inspiration for all of this research and this focus on the evolution of technology and in and, and this business and financial services? Where, where does it come from? 
Uh, okay, so I'm truly, I've been traveling a lot, talking to so many people. I'm a curious person, I'm a reader, um, but uh, I keep on opening up uh, my belief uh, because I don't want to fall into, again, a closed way of thinking, like I find a solution that solves it all, it doesn't exist. But why did I get there? Where my professional life, uh, there's you know, follows my personal life. It's like the journey of Dante Alighieri in the Divine Comedy. I don't know if you know Dante Alighieri from uh, the 1400 in Italy. So he wrote this masterpiece, uh, which is the journey of Dante that goes from hell through purgatory into heaven. Now, the first 15 years of my career, I was head of quantitative risk management for capital markets and investment banking institutions. That means uh, I saw all the things you can possibly see in, an inv- in a bank, uh, and even those things that you don't know yet, I saw them, right? So I learned the limitations of uh, quantitative finance. Uh, I learned the fact that many people look at the ultimate uh, in uh, quantitative methods to get to the last digit, but facing uncertainty, all those models collapse. So that's not the point. The point is to be in a position to master the storm, right, and not to be at top before the storm. And then when I left banking in 2008, I became an entrepreneur. So I built a startup in Germany to innovate on digital wealth management. Now, being in the purgatory means that I had to suffer a lot as an interpreter. That was my second <laughs> entrepreneurial journey. So I made many mistakes, many good things, right? There's a lot of enthusiasm, but there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And then in 2013, IBM bought my small company, and then I started this total digital journey, working with uh, exponential technologies. Now, I may call it heaven because there's such an expectation that technology can resolve. And in true works, a technology is power. But if you like, my peculiar thing is that what I found, again, is the human being, which is the art of action. And that's why I want to reconcile a view about the foundations of finance, so a revision of the quantitative methods, the leveraging of digital technology inside the business model that reconciles humans and technology. Technology can disintermediate few things, and it's good up to a point, right? But relationships are also important. To conclude, what I learned in the last two years where I was granted like everybody else um, for a for long time working from home is that relationships are important. I think we all learned that. We may not have attached enough value to those relationships before the pandemic uh, Let's not forget that that's where the value is uh, to make decisions. That is the essence of uh, wealth management. That is the essence of banking, is a relationship business. We can learn how technology can make that happen again. And I do believe that this is possible. Take a look at my work literature. I hope you can find some inspiration. Of course, you may add your content. You're a very experienced people. I know your audience is amazing. But we'll be able to learn from you. And uh, if you share your feedback on my literature, that is a good starting point. That's incredible. And, you know, I, I want to wrap up. But before we do, I want you to pull out your crystal ball. And I want you to, to say, you know, when you're sitting, uh, whether, you know, when you retire, maybe in 20 years or 10 years, wherever it may be, but you're sitting there and enjoying maybe a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or whatever it may be, where, what is the financial services industry going to look like uh, across the globe in 20 years relative to where it is today? 
Well, the industry will be more embedded and more conscious. Because if it will not be, there will be no industry. So now it is the opportunity to eliminate the friction in user ecosystems. That's what you see on the super apps, uh, on the e-commerce uh, uh, platforms and blah, blah, blah. That makes uh, finance, uh, financial services contextualized. So the role is to eliminate the friction. You know, one click uh, to buy on Amazon, for example, right? So that's what you want to do. But making that uh, embedded, it might create uh, unlock a new value. For example, um, there might be community banks uh, that we lost uh, through the process of aggregation that reappear on digital because now you can find solutions by paying, for example, Square and Tidal on music streaming that target a specific group of people like new artists and so on and so forth, right? They resolve their problem as entrepreneurs or human beings as well as their financial issues. So it is the opportunity to eliminate the friction that makes banking contextualized. That means embed data to unlock new value. But at the same time, it is the need to demonstrate value, which is so important in our society, that clients have to pay for accessing the financial services platform that makes banking and wealth management conscious. That means transparent. To do what? Well, to unlock hidden value in the relationship that exists and is now buried you know, at the bottom of layers of opacity. So I believe that sitting there on my lounge, I will be able to do something on my app and also I have a conversation maybe leveraging virtual reality with my advisor to decide the next step for me or for my heirs or or whatever. That is incredible. <laughs> I want to be very and I already have a visualization of that virtual reality where you can be sitting on the, uh, you know, near the Alps, you know, getting in freezing cold weather and then be in a virtual reality branch and talking to a wealth manager about your financial plan and going through it that way, which is incredible to think of. Well, if I'm sitting on top of the Alps, I better have to have my banker in virtual reality, not in analog life, analog life. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's, that's the way I would rather have that. You can have all these, uh, you know, opportunities there. Well, Paolo, thank you so much. This has been just an intriguing conversation. And I know that the listeners and, and myself as well want to continue to follow your literature and, and you know, be part of the conversation. So how do we continue to follow you? What's the best way to stay in touch and, and follow what you're doing? Three ways. First of all, I host many public conversations on social media, in particular on LinkedIn, Paolo Cironi, reach out there, uh, just connect uh, so we can continue. My literature is all available on uh, Amazon Marketplaces. Uh, the last book, uh, Banks and Fintech on Platform Economies, Contextual and Conscious Banking, is published by Wally. So you find it on Amazon.com or Wiley.com. And if you want to indulge, you can take a look at my website, thepcironi.com, like the Financial Times, thepcironi.com. There's a couple of pictures there. You can see abstracts of the literature. Please indulge and enjoy. That is incredible. So please go out and support Paolo. What he's doing is incredible. And I think that your mentality on moving from productization to relationships is the true alignment of where our industry is going 100%. So I appreciate you spending time with us, sharing your knowledge and your insights. And I wish you all the best. And I can't wait to continue to follow everything that you do. So thanks so much again, Paul. Thanks for hosting me in front of this audience. It's amazing. Appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 